Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The second trial concludes for two men accused of conspiring to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. The jury finds them guilty. A newly disclosed letter unveils what was taken from Mar-a-Lago months before the raid and what the Biden administration did to give the FBI access. Plus, an update on former President Trump's legal motion. The Pentagon has denied the D.C. mayor's second request for National Guard troops to handle the thousands of illegal immigrants sent from Arizona and Texas. The mayor this week calling it a crisis in the city. A former Twitter executive turns whistleblower. He claims the company lied to Elon Musk about fake accounts on the platform. He also says the app's security risks are a threat to national security. Eleven Texas counties are putting pressure on the Texas governor to declare a state of invasion. NTD speaks with a border expert to see what this would look like. A new development in the Kevin Durant sweepstakes. The former league MVP has another meeting with Nets Brass. A federal jury today convicted two men in a conspiracy to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer in 2020. The governor reacts. A jury on Tuesday found Adam Fox and Barry Croft Jr. guilty of conspiring to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer from her vacation home in October 2020. They were also convicted of attempting to obtain a weapon of mass destruction. The verdict confirms that this plot was very serious, very dangerous posed a threat not only to the governor personally and her family, but also to innocent bystanders and the basic social order. This concludes the second trial for the men, because the jury couldn't make a decision in the first trial four months ago. Fox and Croft face sentences of up to life in prison. They were among six men arrested by the FBI and charged by the Justice Department in connection to the plot. Two of the men pleaded guilty and the other two were acquitted. During the trial, prosecutors said that Fox and Croft planned to kidnap the governor because they were angry over her COVID-19 pandemic policies and that they wanted to spark a civil war. Defense attorneys for Fox and Croft said the two men were just big talkers who exercised their right to say objectionable things about Whitmer and government. My client is disappointed in the verdict. Um, it's been a good fight. We've made it twice in a row. We were hoping for a different outcome today. In separate but related cases, the Michigan Attorney General is prosecuting eight other men linked to the plot. The Michigan governor reacted to the verdict on Twitter Tuesday, saying in part, I want to thank the prosecutors and law enforcement officers for their hard work and my family, friends and staff for their support. Today's verdicts prove that violence and threats have no place in our politics and those who seek to divide us will be held accountable. They will not succeed. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Arizona and Texas have bussed more than 8,500 illegal immigrants to Washington, D.C. as of today. The mayor this week calling it a crisis. This as the Pentagon denies the mayor's second request for the National Guard's help. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with the story. 
More than 8,500 illegal immigrants from Texas and Arizona have arrived here in the nation's capital since Texas sent that first bus load back in April. And Texas and Arizona's governors have not indicated that they plan to stop sending them anytime soon. When migrants first arrive here, they're sent to an organization called SAMU First Response, which is located less than a mile from the White House. Now, FEMA is helping these nonprofit organizations um, with housing, transporting, and caring for these migrants because it is costly. D.C.'s attorney general has provided $150,000 in grant money to these nonprofit organizations, and the cost is weighing on the city's resources. D.C.'s mayor now calling it a policy emergency. And we think it can be a crisis in our city. That's why we've asked for federal support. Just hours after the mayor's comments, her request to the Pentagon was denied. The Defense Department's executive secretary stating that, quote, devoting the personnel or facility for such an extended mission would force the cancellation or disruption of military training. The Pentagon has also rejected Bowser's suggestion to use the D.C. armory to house the immigrants because it would be costly to make it suitable for overnight stays. In response to the second denied request, the mayor wrote on Twitter that the city will, quote, move forward with our planning to ensure that when people are coming through D.C. on their way to their final destination, that we will have a humane setting for them. While Texas's Governor Greg Abbott and Mayor Bowser disagree about how the illegal immigration surge should be addressed, both parties are on the same page in calling for action at the federal level. That cities alone can't solve a broken immigration system. But this issue may not die down anytime soon, experts say, due to the so-called pool factors that drive illegal immigrants to the U.S. and oftentimes to sanctuary cities. Congress members and senators from both parties say they want to find a solution for this pressing issue, albeit Republicans and Democrats have two very different proposals for how to solve it. They've been at a stalemate for quite some time because they failed to hash out a solution that both parties can agree on. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And in less than two months, 11 Texas counties have declared invasions at the southern border. It appears to be part of a movement to get the Texas governor to declare an invasion of the state, which would grant him special powers to defend the state. NTD's Jason Perry speaks with a border expert who explains how this could play out. Since President Biden took office, almost 5 million illegal immigrants have crossed the U.S. border. That's according to a report provided by the Federation for American Immigration Reform. Their figure includes about 900,000 gotaways. And in the last seven weeks, 11 Texas counties have declared invasions at the southern border. There's a movement in Texas to have the governor declare a state of emergency uh, by declaring an invasion. I spoke with Todd Benzman, a senior fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies and author of America's Covert Border War to see what this would entail. This is part of a legal theory more than anything else that, that there are two articles in the Constitution and one in the Texas Constitution that would grant the governor emergency war powers to deal with an invasion. The issue there is that if you have these emergency war powers, then Texas could round up all the illegal immigrants and push them into Mexico on its own without the federal government involvement. As of now, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has not declared an invasion. 
But Republican nominee for Arizona Governor Carrie Lake told News Nation this if she gets elected. We're going to issue a declaration of invasion and get the ball rolling, protecting our own state. Benzman explained that these state powers have never been tested and that it would most likely result in an immediate lawsuit from the federal government. We reached out to the Department of Homeland Security for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NTD News. A federal judge in Florida has ordered former President Donald Trump to provide more evidence in his bid to get back some of the materials seized by the FBI. Trump filed a motion on Monday asking the court to appoint an independent party to handle the materials taken from Mar-a-Lago and return any that are not covered by the search warrant. U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon, a Trump appointee, said today that she received the motion but that she wants another filing that elaborates on the case. She's giving Trump's team until Friday to do so. And a letter reveals the Biden administration helped the FBI access documents that were already taken from Mar-a-Lago months before the August raid. It also tells us what was previously moved from Trump's home. NTD's Iris Tao has more. Over 700 pages of classified materials, including some of the highest levels of classification, were moved from Mar-a-Lago to the National Archives back in January. That's according to a letter sent by the Archives, or NARA, to Trump's attorneys in May, which the agency made public on Tuesday. The letter also reveals that a Biden administration helped the FBI access those documents. The archivist wrote that in April, quote, the White House Counsel's Office formally transmitted a request that NARA provide the FBI access to the 15 boxes for its review. And former justice on the Arizona Supreme Court, Andrew Gold, tells NTD. And I don't know why the White House uh, would push this, but um, that's very troubling. Trump, meanwhile, reacted to the letter on Tuesday, saying, quote, the White House stated strongly that they were not involved, but documents reveal they knew everything. Yet others, including a University of Texas law professor, say the letter instead incriminates Trump. He notes that the letter does not bring up a claim by Trump's representatives that Trump had declassified any of the classified materials. Meanwhile, a Thursday deadline is approaching for the Justice Department to propose redactions to the Mar-a-Lago search affidavit. While it's expected to be heavily redacted, a federal judge has said the document should at least partially come to light due to heavy public interest. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Tomorrow morning, NTD will premiere a new investigative report on the Mar-a-Lago raid. NTD's Paul Graney sat down with legal experts and political insiders to find out if the FBI's raid is politically motivated. Are Trump's political opponents trying to stop him from running for president in 2024? Is there a connection between the raid and the allegations of Trump-Russia collusion in 2016? Tune in to Epic TV Wednesday morning at 8.30 a.m. Eastern to find out. And now, Paul Pelosi. The husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi pleaded guilty today to charges of driving under the influence. The judge said Paul Pelosi's plea agreement includes a five-day jail term. He has already served four of those days, and the final day will be covered by an eight-hour work term. The judge also ordered three years of probation and a three-month drunk driving program. In addition, Paul Pelosi will have an ignition interlock device installed in his vehicle and will need to make restitution payments. 
Paul Pelosi did not appear in person at the Napa County Superior Court. His lawyer entered his guilty plea on his behalf. A new Twitter whistleblower is alleging the social media giant can't properly protect its user data. He compared it to an airplane where everyone has access to the cockpit. He also says the company has been lying about its handling of spam bots. NTD's Fake Quarter has more. Peter Zatko is Twitter's former head of security and a hacker that goes by the name Mudge. He filed a whistleblower complaint with multiple federal authorities, including the Federal Trade Commission, or FTC. The complaint was obtained by the Washington Post and CNN this week. Zatko alleges that Twitter violated an 11-year-old settlement it had with the FTC. According to his complaint, Twitter falsely claimed that it had a solid security plan, when in reality, with far too many staff, about half of Twitter's 10,000 employees and growing, given access to sensitive live production systems and user data in order to do their jobs. Zatko gave an analogy of an airplane where all passengers are in control. All have access to the cockpit, to the controls, you know, that's entirely unnecessary. It might be easy, but there it's too easy to accidentally or intentionally turn an engine off. His complaint also alleges that Twitter places much more importance in growing the number of users rather than getting rid of spam bots. The company allegedly gave out bonuses as high as $10 million for executives who increased the number of daily users. A spokeswoman for Twitter responded, saying the company removes one million spam bots every single day and that growing daily users is the smallest of three factors for earning cash bonuses. But Zetko alleges that Twitter lied to Elon Musk about the tech company's handling and knowledge of spam bots when the billionaire wanted to buy Twitter. He alleges Twitter didn't even have the resources to find out how many spam bots the company really has. This argument supports what Musk said in the past, that Twitter is underreporting its number of bots. Zatko's lawyer says their intention with the complaint wasn't to help Musk. Absolutely not. We've been following the news just like everyone else, um, but that has nothing to do with his decisions or with the content of, uh, of what was sent in to U.S. law enforcement agencies. Twitter spokeswoman told The Post that Zatko's allegations seem to be riddled with inaccuracies. She says Zatko was fired in January after 15 months with the company for poor performance and leadership. She added that Twitter improved security extensively since 2020, that its security practices are within industry standards, and that it has specific rules about who can access company systems. Faye Quarter, NTD News. A male teacher suggesting that a young girl sleep in a cabin filled with boys and a therapist proactively using male pronouns for the girl. A mother from Washington State told our reporter that all happened to her daughter. The Independent Women's Forum first reported the story from Jennifer from Washington State. Her daughter attended an online drawing class where she learned about sexuality and identities. She then went through a period of going by a different name. Jennifer told NTD many of her daughter's friends in school already identified as gay or lesbian and that they would compete over who had the edgiest identity. You know, they started with um, a romantic, you know, at 10 years old and went on to things like demisexual and uh, non-binary and then and gay. Uh, and eventually my daughter ended on uh, transgender in fifth grade. Jennifer says her daughter told her teachers and classmates she identified as transgender. But Jennifer says no one told her. 
Later, the girl's teacher reported hearing her talk about self-harm and suicide, so a counselor recommended she see a therapist that was contracted with the school. Only much later, Jennifer found out that this therapist addressed her daughter with male pronouns from the first time they met. Jennifer often asked about their progress, but wasn't told about that. The therapist went directly against what, what I believed was happening with my child. She knew my child for a total of five hours, and um, she seemed to think she knew, knew her better than, than me and her father. Later that year, the girl's male teacher suggested that she sleep in the boy's cabin in an upcoming school trip. We were never going to let her be in a boy's cabin with a, a male teacher and uh, boys. There's many reasons not to allow that. Um, and many safeguarding fails there. Jennifer's daughter asked not to go on the trip, and Jennifer then pulled her out of school. Now that two years have passed, she doesn't think she's transgender anymore. Jennifer says things would not have gone that far if her daughter was in a different environment. But she says kids are exposed to the same kinds of ideology everywhere they go, be it in cartoons, advertisements, or other things they see. NTD reached out to the school in question, but didn't hear back before broadcast. The sheriff's office in Placer County, California, confirms that the body pulled from a reservoir on Sunday belongs to the missing teen, 16-year-old Kylie Rodney. A private group called Adventures with Purpose discovered the car submerged 14 feet underwater in Prosser Lake. An autopsy today confirmed that the remains inside the car belong to Rodney. It could take over a month for toxicology results to come out. Rodney went missing on August 6th near a campground after a high school graduation send-off. And now to election news. In Florida, voters are casting ballots in the primaries. The winners will become the nominees for November's gubernatorial and congressional elections. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. Brian Fonseca is a political science analyst and professor at Florida International University. He says the Democratic primary for governor is the race to pay attention to. Arguably the most important primary race that's going to occur in Florida this week is certainly the Democratic gubernatorial race. This is essentially a primary race to determine who is going to take on uh, current Governor Ron DeSantis come midterm elections later on this year. And essentially, there are two candidates sort of vying for that seat. It's Charlie Chris and, and, and Nikki Fried. Fonseca also says the poll numbers still don't give a clear indication of how the candidates are doing. Chris still has a slight advantage, but I do think that, you know, again, anything is possible and Nikki Fried could pull off an upset and win the Democratic primary, uh, it's really going to come down to whether or not Democrats get out to back one of their respective candidates, whether it's Chris or Freed. That's why I think it tends to be, you know, far, far closer than maybe the polls have suggested. Governor Ron DeSantis is unopposed as the Republican candidate. Fonseca says the battle between the Democratic and Republican parties is as intense as ever. So the, the country is is deeply polarized. There's no doubt about that. And, and political scientists have argued for this idea of pernicious polarization. And that is that we're at a state of polarization where um, it's no longer just two parties that are entrenched in their own beliefs, but it's two parties that look at the other as the enemy. Fonseca also predicts Governor DeSantis may be preparing for a presidential run. I think he's definitely thinking about it. I think a lot of the things that you sort of see coming out of, um, you know, out of Tallahassee, out of DeSantis's administration, tend to, um, you know, tend to lean towards a potential, 
you know, presidential run. Floridians are also choosing their nominees for November's congressional elections. The midterm elections will determine which party controls the House of Representatives and the Senate for the next two years. Early voting for the Florida primaries ended on Sunday. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And today, New Yorkers are heading to the polls for the primaries. Redistricting has jumbled the state's election map, and there are important races to watch within the Democratic Party. New York is staging primaries after a court-appointed special master released a draft congressional map. Two Democratic Congress members, Caroline Maloney and Gerald Nadler, who have both served more than three decades in the House, are pitted against each other. They will be facing off against attorney Suraj Patel in New York's 12th district. Political analyst Hank Shankoff offers his thoughts. Carolyn Maloney's great strength is probably she's the architect and the builder, as she promised, of the 2nd Avenue subway. Gerald Nadler, on the other hand, his great claim to fame would be uh, the impeachment hearings of late. But he has, uh, with respect to record accomplishment on a constant basis, his major theme throughout his career has been the construction of the, uh, of the uh, Cross Hudson Harbor Tunnel, which has never been built. Shenkoff says even in this non-presidential year, a familiar figure is looming large in those elections. The reality is in both these campaigns and campaigns throughout the country on both sides of the aisle, Donald Trump is the social moment, he is the political moment, he is the dominating presence. In both cases, in the Nadler case and in the Goldman case and in, in, in the Brooklyn Queens district where Dan Goldman, uh, counsel to the impeachment committee, is also on the ballot as a, con as a running for Congress with no history of local involvement whatsoever. Following the redistricting, Democratic Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, chair of the National Democratic Party's congressional campaign arm, will run in a new district made up mostly of his Democrat colleague Mondaire Jones's seat. And Jones will run in Nadler's old district. Sheinkoff also comments on a major issue that looms large this election. What's also important to note is that the suburbs of New York City are changing in a different way. They're becoming much more black and Latin, but they're also becoming conservative again. Why crime? The number of reported crimes in suburban Nassau County in the first five months of the year was up 75 percent, both felonies and misdemeanors. Crime is the issue driving the moment. Turnout estimates are very low for the congressional and state Senate primaries. Politicos have put turnout at 10 percent or even lower in various parts of the state. And over at Apple headquarters, workers are upset because they don't want to give up full-time remote working. But an economist says this new work culture isn't here to stay. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Starting September 5th, Apple's corporate employees must work in the office three days a week. Some workers say it's too restrictive, so they launched a petition drive with a list of demands, including making their own schedules. I spoke to an economist to get her take on the employee's reaction. How does working from home affect the economy? Well, there can be both some positive and some negative things. People who are able to do their jobs remotely, that can be a great thing. They can save on things like the commute time and the cost of gasoline, and it can have a benefit for companies too. They can save on the cost of the office space and also some of the travel expenses. So when we think about the collaboration, the encouragement of our fellow workers or the mentoring that might take place at the workplace, those things can be lost or they can become less valuable without those in-person interactions. She said it's difficult to find a happy medium, but it's not because companies haven't been trying. So companies are raising wages, they're adding new and expanded paid family leave packages, they're paying for college tuition, there's more flexible and family-friendly policies. So what's the problem? I think that part of the problem here is that the culture of work has shifted somewhat. 
and you know, for year, nearly a year and a half, work had become optional for almost a majority of the population when you considered the value of the unemployment insurance benefits, the bonus benefits on top of the normal ones that made it so that a lot of people could make more money from not working than from gainful employment. She said this culture can't stay forever. There's nearly two job openings available for every unemployed worker, but we don't know how long that will stick around. And so I think that eventually we will get back to what we might say is more of the normal. NTD reached out to Apple for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Olympian Anthony Watson was canceled by mainstream America after expressing his conservative values. His sponsorships were revoked and main source of income gone. Despite the hardship, he's calling on other young adults to overcome the intimidation of cancel culture. Here's what he had to say in an interview with NTD's Melina Weiskup. So I wanted to ask you about your story. So I heard that you were canceled. Uh, your sponsorship from media co uh, corporations, I mean, big corporations canceled you because you came out in support for conservative values, because you were a con uh, contributor to Turning Point USA. Can you tell us about your story? So in a brief summary, what happened was two years ago, December 2020, I was here uh, two years after the 2018 Winter Games in the height of COVID. And I was literally just posting photos and videos of being at the Turning Point event. And I was sponsored by Rain Total Body Fuel, which is an offset of Monster Energy drinks. I was sponsored by a clothing company that was giving me a hefty paycheck to make sure that I had enough training. And then when they found out that I was there, they started questioning why I was there. They didn't really appreciate me being there. And then when my contracts ended, I never heard from them again. And then when I tried reaching out to them, they weren't interested in working with me again. That just sheds light on how much our large corporations have been infiltrated by this socialism, communist ideology. And if you don't support subscribe to their beliefs, they will take action against you. And I, you know, I heard one other interview you did. You said you actually went through an experience where you were homeless after that period of time because they took your funding away simply for being a young conservative. So I, I wanted you to take us, if you can go back in that headspace and take us back to that moment, uh, what was going through your mind at that time when you got the news? Oh, I was afraid because I was, you know, that, that was paying for my housing, that was paying for my coaching. And when all that got taken away, it, you slowly started seeing everything that you were training and working with disappear. And so I was living in my car for, you know, two weeks to a month before I decided to, you know, swallow my pride and come back home to live with my parents uh, before trying to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life, you know. And at the age of, like, 30 at the time, you know, no one really wants to admit that kind of stuff. Nobody really likes going through that kind of stuff. But, you know, that was my experience for simply being here, not even speaking. Now that I've spoken, I've gotten a lot of heat and a lot of flack from a lot of other big corporations and a lot of other people that, you know, have deemed me dangerous or have said not to work with me in the future. And so I want to ask your perception on something that's been on my mind lately. You know, nowadays it seems as if even if you do have the right values, it's almost like you're looking towards people who are in power to take action for you. And it seems like individual action is something that's very difficult to do. And like you said, like you're almost intimidated uh, by big tech and other things to not do that. So I wanted to ask you, you know, what is this, what is the answer? What is your suggestion for young Americans who maybe they don't really know where to start or what to do? Well, taking individual action isn't always like leading the charge in a fight. Taking individual action is taking accountability for your actions. And that's something that isn't being preached or isn't being promoted anywhere. It's whenever you do something, it's because of so-and-so, this person forced you to do it, or you're in this position because of eco, or, you know, the government, or your race, 
or all these other things, but right is right and wrong is wrong. And you have a lot of people that have now switched the paradigm where wrong is right and right is wrong, where now they're trying to confuse everybody. So I tell everyone, I'm just like, individuality means that when you make a mistake, you've got to own up to it because the mistake goes away faster when you're willing to take responsibility for it. When you try to push it and do everything else, it prolongs, it builds, and then it becomes more destructive than it is. So when individuals can realize, hey, we made a mistake, we've got to fix myself, then when you fix yourself and you start living out your conviction, that's when it starts to change for everybody else and that's when you create a real impact. I really like that point of having self-reflection and self-improvement. I think that's very crucial for every everybody to learn from. So thank you for your words of wisdom and we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Coming up, research is now out about how effective a $0 bail program in California is. Results show the pandemic lockdown era program resulted in a very high rate of repeat offenders. And new details in the Kevin Durant sweepstakes. NTD's Dave Martin breaks down the latest developments. Welcome back. Texas Governor Greg Abbott declared a disaster for 23 Texas counties today after storms and rainfall triggered flash flooding. Officials warned drivers to stay off the roads. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the record rainfall. Rescue workers struggled to respond to hundreds of calls from residents taken off guard by the sudden downpour. Water seeped into some businesses and homes. My, my apartment is literally flooding. I just woke up and I don't, should I call 911? What do I do? <laughs> At least one death has been attributed to the deluge. A 60-year-old woman from a Dallas suburb was killed when water swept her vehicle off the interstate. She was found when waters receded. Dallas County declared a disaster and requested federal and state assistance for affected individuals. The National Weather Service issued a flash flood warning in the affected areas on Monday and asked people to stay off the roads. Dallas police say hundreds of accidents were reported during the flooding. Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport reported over nine inches of rain over 24 hours on Monday, the most on record since 1932. Hundreds of flights were delayed and canceled. At White Rock Lake in Dallas, the once dry concrete spillway was turned into what looked like river rapids. Dallas Fire Rescue says it responded to 195 high water incidents, rescuing 21 people and 10 dogs. The Fort Worth Fire Department says it received around 500 calls for service, performing over 170 high water rescues and investigations. The major flood threat is expected to subside in the area on Tuesday as storms shift eastward toward Louisiana and Mississippi. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And a district attorney in one Northern California county released an analysis on its emergency bail program, which set $0 bails during pandemic restrictions. The result was that over two-thirds of criminal suspects released had committed new crimes. NTD's David Lamb reports. The Yolo County District Attorney in Northern California announced on Monday that 70.6% of its suspects released on zero bail have committed new crimes. In June this year, the DA's office conducted an analysis to examine inmates released on zero bail and recidivism. 
Jeff Reisig, District Attorney of Yolo County, said when over 70% of the people released under mandated zero-bail policies go on to commit additional crimes, including violent offenses such as robbery and murder, there is simply no rational public safety-related basis to continue such a practice post-pandemic, especially in light of the increasing violent crime rates across California. In April 2020, the Judicial Council of California imposed statewide emergency bail, which set zero bail for misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies. It was designed to reduce crowding in jails during COVID-19 pandemic restrictions. The mandate ended in June 2020, but individual counties were allowed to keep it in place. Yolo County kept it in place until May 2021. During this time, the DA's office found that 595 individuals were released under emergency bail. Of the individuals released, 420 were rearrested, or 70.6 percent, and 123 20% were arrested for a violent crime. One individual was charged with murder in Sacramento County for a shooting that occurred in July 2021. The average number of days a suspect was rearrested on new charges was 149 days, and five individuals were arrested on the same day as they were released. David Lamb, Entity News, California. And a controversial bill that would have allowed drug injection sites in California has been rejected. The governor says the planning was not done well and could do more harm than good. NTD's Eileen Ang hears more from one of the bill's strongest opponents. Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed Senator Scott Wiener's Senate Bill 57, also known as the Controlled Substances Overdose Prevention Program, on Monday. It would have allowed cities like Los Angeles, Oakland, and San Francisco to launch, quote, safe consumption sites. In a statement, Newsom wrote, The unlimited number of safe injection sites that this bill would authorize, facilities which could exist well into the later part of this decade, could induce a world of unintended consequences. He added that if the sites are not planned properly, quote, they could work against this purpose. Opponents of the bill praised Newsom's veto. Our, our coalition uh, applauds the governor's sagacious decision. This is really a happy day for Californians. It is a great victory in the fight against drugs. Despite Newsom rejecting the bill, San Francisco declared it will be opening up the injection sites anyway. Supporters, including Mayor London Breed, say they will help prevent drug overdose. But some groups, like Mothers Against Drug Deaths, are against the decision. The group held the first Fentanyl Awareness Day over the weekend, opposing San Francisco's stance on illicit drugs. We condemn the city of San Francisco for taking such actions. If they continue to do that, actually is a violation both of the federal law and the state law. Uh, we believe that anybody filing a lawsuit in court would take those sites down. Lee says he and his organization hope to provide accountability to San Francisco's drug consumption program, gathering concrete evidence and data on the program's effectiveness. Eileen Ang, NTD News, California. A California school principal called the police on a four-year-old because he refused to wear a mask. His father, a medical professional, recorded the incident and spoke out against the school's actions. NTD's Daniel Hall has the story. 
A father in Mountain View, California recorded footage as school staff refused his four-year-old son from attending school on Thursday. The father, who went only by his first name, Sean, told Fox and Friends that the principal later called the police on him and his son. He said he was, quote, livid. They're acting as medical enforcement without medical licensure. I'm completely outraged because I'm a paramedic by trade. They're not giving informed consent. They're not giving right of refusal. And they're weaponizing, um, they're weaponizing coercion by denying access to public services. I'm the incident, which happened at Thierkauf Elementary School, caused a stir on social media. The following day, the school removed its masking policy. The Mountain View Wisman School District said in a statement, quote, its priority is keeping students and staff safe. Sean's lawyer, Tracy Henderson, told Fox and Friends that sending children to school takes a great amount of trust from parents. She said, quote, what they did not only breaks that trust, but they broke the law. There never was a legal mandate. It's the greatest misinformation campaign perpetuated on California educators across the state. The change in the school's masking policy comes after the CDC recently announced the ineffectiveness of lockdowns, social distancing, as well as masking and jab mandates on protecting children from COVID infection. The CDC estimates about 70% of California students have already been infected with COVID, behind the national average of roughly 80%. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Kevin Durant may be staying in Brooklyn after all. The former league MVP created a stir back on June 30th when he reportedly wanted to be traded from the Nets. But nearly two months later, Brooklyn has yet to find a trading partner that will satisfy their complicated requirements. The Nets would most likely want a star of Durant's caliber in return, while the 33-year-old, who's won four scoring titles, would presumably want to play on the same team as one instead. Meanwhile, Brooklyn would be less inclined to trade him for draft picks and essentially start over, as the Nets' future first-round picks are the property of the Houston Rockets through 2027 as a result of the James Harden blockbuster trade. Durant came to Brooklyn along with Kyrie Irving in 2019. He missed his first season there with an Achilles injury, but the next season, Brooklyn went all-in to acquire Harden from Houston, giving them a powerful trio of stars. Unfortunately, between injuries to all three players, as well as a vaccination ban on Irving, the team never quite fulfilled their immense expectations. Harden was dealt to the Sixers this past February in a trade for Ben Simmons, but Simmons never suited up and Brooklyn was swept by the Celtics in the first round. The 12-time All-Star Durant has four years and nearly $200 million left on his contract. Brooklyn's season starts on October 19th against New Orleans. In NFL news, Tampa Bay quarterback Tom Brady was back at practice yesterday after taking an 11-day absence for what head coach Todd Bowles said were personal reasons. Brady, though, did not meet with reporters after practice. Speculation has run rampant that the seven-time Super Bowl winner was doing a taping of Fox's show, The Masked Singer. The rumor's plausibility is wrapped up in the facts that filming was finished on August 20th. Two of Brady's former teammates, Rob Gronkowski and Antonio Brown, have previously appeared on the show, and Brady himself already has a relationship with Fox after signing a 10-year, $375 million deal to work as a color commentator when he retires. 
Brady finally put to rest the rumors Monday night, tweeting that he wasn't on The Masked Singer last week, but added that he was wearing a mask without offering an explanation. Tampa Bay's season starts in Dallas against the Cowboys on September 11th. Finally in baseball, Cardinals 42-year-old slugger Albert Pujols hit a solo home run last night for St. Louis, which turned out to be the difference in their 1-0 win over Chicago. The home run was the 693rd of his illustrious career, good for fifth all-time, while tying him with Barry Bonds for first place by going yard on his 449th different pitcher. Meanwhile, the Blast was the seventh in the last 10 games for the three-time MVP who's playing in his final season. The win for the Cards was their eighth in a row and maintains their five-game lead in the NL Central. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, Ukraine is on high alert as the country's Independence Day draws near. It's also the six-month mark of Russia's invasion. U.S. officials are urging American citizens to leave Ukraine, saying Moscow could be preparing an attack. And a leading Russian political thinker sat at a memorial for his daughter that she died for Russia. Daria Dugina was killed in a car bombing that Moscow blamed on Ukrainian intelligence. That and more after the break. I can't imagine what the affidavit would say to justify a seizure that broad. There was essentially nothing in the, in the body of this very classified document that gave any evidence that Trump was a Russian asset. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. All of these documents I'm taking are declassified. I mean, this is, this is not some bureaucratic process. I don't even know why that was necessary. I think it's just part of the tactics to try to increase pressure on those around President Trump. My colleague, Peter Navarro, is arrested on a misdemeanor by an FBI SWAT team at Reagan Airport. Uh, on January 25th, 2019, uh, 29 fully SWAT-clad FBI agents who arrived in 17 armored vehicles uh, with a government helicopter overhead and two FBI boats pulling up to the dock behind my house. I gather the purpose of this was intimidation. Donald Trump, as a human being, as a man who is now a politician, is not owned by anybody. And that's what makes him very dangerous. He is lethal to the vested interests in this city, left and right. It's the eve of Ukraine's Independence Day and the six-month mark of Russia's invasion. Kyiv is concerned that Moscow might plan to commemorate the events by attacking significant government and civilian targets. The Ukrainian government has banned celebrations in the capital, and the United States is urging its citizens to leave the country. Here's a report from NTD's John D. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky warned Moscow on Tuesday of retribution if Russian forces carry out attacks on or around Ukraine's Independence Day on Wednesday. 
If they hit us, they will receive a response, a powerful response. I want to say that each day, this response will grow. It will get stronger and stronger. Asked at a news conference with visiting Polish President Andrzej Duda about the possibility of a Russian missile strike on Kiev, he said there was a daily threat of attacks. Zelensky has warned that Russia could try what he called something particularly ugly in the run-up to the national holiday, which marks Ukraine's break from Soviet rule 31 years ago. The United States reinforced the worry when its embassy in Kiev urged US citizens still in Ukraine to depart the country immediately. In a statement, it said it has information that Russia was preparing to target civilian and government infrastructure in the next few days as the war reaches the six-month mark. The warning followed a ban by the Ukrainian government on celebrations in the capital, as well as stepped-up security. The mood in the city was calm on Tuesday, with many people still wandering the streets. Kiev has only rarely been hit by Russian missiles since Ukraine repelled a ground offensive to seize the capital in March. Authorities in Ukraine's second-largest city, Kharkiv, have also banned public celebrations as well as announced a two-day curfew. We understand that this is a forced measure to protect us, not to provoke anything bad so people aren't killed. Anything should be done to save lives, and staying at home isn't that big of a sacrifice. We understand this. Anything can be expected, considering that they mostly bomb civilians. Anything can happen. Kharkiv has come under frequent and deadly longer-range artillery and rocket fire since the beginning of the war. Ukrainian authorities have told citizens to work from home where possible until Thursday and urged people to take air raid warnings seriously and seek shelter when the sirens sound. John D, NTD News. And in Moscow, hundreds of people yesterday paid tribute to Daria Dudgina, the daughter of a leading Russian political thinker who died in a car bombing. Alexander Dugin, who is a vocal supporter of Russian President Vladimir Putin and Moscow's operations in Ukraine, spoke at the memorial. The price that we have to pay can be justified by only one thing, the highest achievement, victory. She lived in the name of victory, and she died in the name of victory. Our Russian victory, our truth, our orthodoxy, our country and our empire. Dugin has long advocated for the unification of Russian-speaking and other territories in a vast new Russian empire. He helped popularize the new Russia concept that Russia used to justify the 2014 annexation of Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula and its support of separatist rebels in eastern Ukraine. Dugin has also promoted authoritarian leadership in Russia and spoken with disdain for liberal Western values. Russia's accused Ukraine's secret services of killing Daria Dugina, which Kiev denies. Dugin, who's on U.S. and European sanctions lists, was widely believed to be the intended target. Next, we hear the experiences of a Ukrainian soldier who is back home on leave. As he ex embraces precious time with his family in Poland, he reflects on six months of war on the front line. Here's more. For Ukrainian soldier Dmitry Dovchenko, Embracing his family back in Poland after six months on the front line brings a special poignancy, 
as he tries to clear his mind of images of war. I am home now. I am where my wife and my children are. I am home. Of course, I am happy. I am happy. Dojenko and his family moved to Poland from Ukraine in 2019, but after Russian forces attacked his native land earlier this year, he returned to fight. Months of combat later, the 41-year-old can now savour the daily routine of home life, cooking, curling his two small children and going for walks with his wife Oleksandra. When he's here, it's always a holiday. He's a wonderful husband and father. We are doing everything so we can be together. The current war is not the first time Dovchenko has battled Russian troops. He fought against them in the Donbas region in 2014, the year Moscow annexed Crimea from Ukraine. But this time, he said, the conflict is more brutal. There used to be a battle line. Our country is here and there was a legal delineation. Now there's no such line. And all of the rockets, the shots, everything that Russia was using now wasn't there before. With no sign of a let-up in the Russian advance and the Ukrainian army outgunned, Dovjenko has little patience for Western voices that express concern but offer no tangible help. Someone is concerned and we have rockets falling on our heads. If you're so concerned, we can switch spots. I invite them to Kharkiv or Mykolaiv. Their concern will be very much needed there. He described the image of a mother and child in Irpin, whose mutilated bodies had been tied together. He also showed Reuters cell phone footage of bodies laid out in a hospital, he said, he visited in nearby Bucha. The defense ministry in Moscow did not respond to a request for comment on Dovchenko's accounts of the war, which Reuters was not able to independently verify. Moscow has repeatedly denied targeting civilians. While home, Dovchenko and his wife stayed focused on enjoying their last hours together before he returns to Ukraine. Tomorrow I will come back to my work, to my army unit. It is work, work that needs to be done. I might have a very small chance of being able to return again to my wife and kids, but this work needs to be done. Coming up, an entrepreneur finds a unique solution to a problem children in poor countries are facing, helping them stay healthy, happy and confident by creating a durable shoe that grows. Stay tuned for more after the break. Small things that make a big difference. That's what the founder of an international nonprofit is doing to help impoverished children around the world by creating a unique kind of shoe that grows. Kenton Lee is the founder of Because International, a nonprofit organization that's fighting poverty with products. We just want to do our small thing. Uh, that we think makes a big difference. And, and I think if we all can do some small things that make a big difference, I really think those all add up. Lee created a durable brand of shoe that can adjust and expand in size. He first had the idea while living in Kenya. When volunteering at a small orphanage, he noticed many local kids didn't have shoes that fit, or any at all. Um, this little hook right here looks a little bit like a number five, and it can go into any of these loops. So 
The kids can make it shorter or they can put it in some different loops to make it longer. Creating the shoes wasn't without challenges. It took six years to develop the concept and find the right company to work with. Major shoe companies said no to the idea, so Lee and a friend took it upon themselves to build different prototypes. Uh, lots of failure, lots of rejection, but um, super glad that we kept going uh, because uh, we finally did it. We had made a shoe that could grow five sizes and, and last for years. Eventually, a shoe design company jumped on board. We told them our idea and they loved it. They thought it was amazing and so uh, they, they jumped in with us. Over the last seven years, they've distributed over 350,000 pairs of shoes that grow to kids in over 100 countries. We had a story come out online about our shoes and it just took off. Uh, we accidentally went viral. Working with around 5,000 different partners to connect directly with kids who need them the most. It's a small thing that makes a big difference. It helps them be a little bit more healthy. It helps them attend school more often. And it just helps make them more happy and confident when they have a good pair of shoes that fit. The shoes are made in Kenya, produced by a local factory employing around 20 people. We're really big believers in practical compassion that if you see something you can do to help, jump in, give it a try. It might not be perfect. You might not do it very well, um, but there's a really, uh, there's a lot of power in small things, and even if you help one person. Lee encourages others to follow their genuine interests and develop their ideas to fruition. He says starting small can make a big impact. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.